Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. It's good to be here. It is. It's not like we go anywhere. No. It's not like we, you know, skip a couple of weeks. And we should. Up. We should skip a couple of weeks, see if anyone notices. I'll record outside in the bitter cold, so the next week when we say it's good to be here, we, we mean it from the bottom of our cold, cold hearts. No, I'm not. Um, our hearts are cold and cold anyway. <laughs> I am not recording outside at the moment. That no. ain't happening. It is, it is pretty bitter. And cold. That too. And bitterly cold. Yeah. And coldly bitter. That also. And we are just bitter. Mm. So <laughs> we did not cancel each other out. Do. You done anything this week? Excitingly comic book related? Eh? No. No. But as we record this, we should have mentioned this a few weeks ago, as we record this, it's Thought Bubble in a week or so. In, a, in two weeks. Yeah, so so that'll just be about right, won't it? Mm. So we will have met Stephen Lacey again. Hello. We will have. At the Thought Bubble. Who's that Thought Bubble that you wish to talk to this time? The Scott Snyder. The Scott Snyder. The only. The one. I'm sure there are The man. Ones. The machine. Scott <laughs> Snyder. The Jeff Lemire. Oh, there's Jeff Lemire, though. Yeah. Excellent. Good, Becky good, good. Cleland's going again. Good, good, good. Tim, Tim Sale. Tim Sale is also there. Cliff Chiang is there. Is so this is more for you, then. Cameron Stewart's there. Right. Yeah. None of these people we've not seen before now, though. Cliff Chiang. Have we not seen Cliff Chiang? No. That's got Snyder. No. Capullo not coming. He's not. Shame. Uh, Twittering, uh, I, I think. <laughs> is it called tweeting? Yeah, well, yeah. Are you just not down with the children? Doing doing my Twittering research. Uh, uh, it, it's it's, it's called research now, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah it is. <laughs> I I do believe I have a hunch that it's about money and uh, being with his family, and he doesn't have time to come over it. Oh, that's a shame. Mm. Would have been cool to have him sign Court of Owls the mask. Yeah, yeah. wouldn't it? Both of them sign the Court of Owls mask. Mm. That would be awesome. All right, then. Well, that's not happened yet, so we can't really talk about it, can we? But I'm sure it will ground. I'm sure it will. If we've been to it by the time you hear this, yeah. which you know, I'll tell I'll be able to tell you in a minute because I have it all planned out like a professional thing. Yes, this, yes, this will have been heard by the time we this goes up. We will have been. It will have been last Saturday. So we're talking about something in the future that we will have done by the time people hear this. Mm. Excellent time travel, wibbly wobbly barley wally time of podcasting incestuousness. That's what it is. Okay. Okay. Anyway, we got an email from Kurt Gruenwald about Velvet, the Valentine's Massacre. Do you remember covering Velvet? It was a while it ago. It seems like a long time ago. It does. At this point. You okay. Know, I keep oh, remembering. Sorry. I keep remembering comics we've done. We've recorded. Do you? Because I don't. On the show, and it's like, oh yeah, we did that. Right. Do you not ever think we should cover such and such a thing and then go, wait a minute, we have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that the other day about Hulk Gray. <laughs> 
nowhere will I. I'm looking at stuff Stephen told me after recording Fantastic Ass Tim Sales going, I'm like, oh, well, what can I get into Sai? Yeah. And I'm looking, I'm going, mm, Long Halloween, Superman for All Seasons. I got him to do Spider Man Blue last time I saw him. Hulk Grey. You know, we really should cover Hulk Grey on the show. Well, I don't know what I was doing, but then I realised, oh, yeah, Avengers vs. X Men was a thing. Oh, yeah, we covered it. We did it, yeah. Yeah. So if we ever end up doing something that we've already done, it's because we forgot. <laughs> Do you know that could be quite funny? What if we covered something that we've already done, and this time we had a completely different opinion on it, but like, we didn't know? In a couple of years, we'll like Ghost Rider. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> like in a couple of years, I may like Civil War after they do it on Captain America three. Uh, after the the revisit it, revisit it in 2015. They don't have to revisit it. Anyway, should we should we talk about Coke's email? Yes. Yeah, so Since okay. we started and then we didn't finish. As is a tradition. On the As show. is tradition. Yeah. Uh, I'm minding my own business. Doesn't that start a Smith song? I was minding my business. Yes. Da, 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 the, the room of the, the holy the game church. church. It was. Uh, it's that one. It's picking a tutu, isn't it? The holy game church. Yes. That's not the words. No, it's not. <laughs> Listening to David Tennant... Should I start Kirk's email again? I was minding my own business, listening to David Tennant read On Her Majesty's Secret Service and really enjoying it. I finished it today and hear him do a little short explanation on how much he enjoyed it, having seen the movie first. And then my MP3 player flips to your show about Velvet and you start drawing comparisons to James Bond in the 1950s, 60s, 70s and before I know it, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I had to go to eBay to look for these back issues, as you've only gotten through issues two before I had to stop listening, because I know I'm hooked. I loved their work on Captain America, Man Out of Time, and The Winter Soldier, and I know that I'll love following this twisted tale. I don't Ed Brubecker didn't do Man Out of Time, did he? That was, was that Mark, Mark Wade, Wade, wasn't it? Who drew it? Epton, wasn't it? Was it also Steve Epton? Yeah, so there you go, there's the connection yeah. that he's going for. Right, I went to writers. Yeah. Right, fine. Yeah, Steve Epting did indeed do that. Kirk. Well, thank you very much for very much enjoying Velvet. And we made you go and buy it, which means Ed Brubaker owes me money. Yeah. Or, at the very least, an autographed copy of something. Okay, yeah. I'd like that. It wouldn't cost him anything. No. It wouldn't cost him anything to autograph something, does it? Buying pens. The things he's autographed. I will send him a pen. <laughs> I don't think you can send pens in the post, can you? Kidding. You laugh at send stuff like that. No, pressure, isn't it? I don't know. Unless you send it by boat. <laughs> Which apparently they do. Scott Finlay has emailed in about the 90s show. Scott is... A new listener. <laughs> a new emailer. Wow. We I, like that. I like how you pulled that trumpet. Did you like that trumpet? Yeah. I'll just add it up. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Of all the things to have at the side of it, a trumpet on the night that I needed a trumpet. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Dear Andrew and Michael, I have just discovered your show a few weeks ago after hearing Andrew on Views from the Long Box about hard-travelling heroes, and I've been cherry-picking through episodes. I particularly enjoyed the 90s episode because that is my golden age of comics. I read a lot of really bad stuff, but also some great stories. You questioned Sue Richard's bad attitude in Fantastic Four 375. I looked at a random copy I have, 369, which was an Infinity War crossover. Sue merges with some alternative personality called Malice. Malice looks very much like the 90s archetype bad girl. Bad girls who are good would make a fun podcast episode. That's, that's a good idea, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Send us some suggestions and we'll consider it. I have no idea where any of it went, but I suppose that the influence of Malice led to the new costumes with the strategic holes. Lex Luthor's wife, the Contessa, pretty much came out of nowhere, and she and Lex had a daughter, Helena. Having served her purpose in giving Lex a child, eventually he has her killed. During the big Brainiac 13Y2K story, Lex sacrifices Lena for some kind of technological gain from Brainiac. I think that Lena showed up a couple of times as some kind of robot thing. During the letters section of the last 90s show, you discussed how Michael had issues with the popularity of the comic book movie because the people that look down on him for reading comics are huge fan of the characters now because of the movies. I can sympathise. I have been heavily into these superheroes for most of my life. A relative posted a picture from a family reunion from around 1992 on Facebook and I had a Batman Returns t-shirt on. I remember getting a lot of flack for that shirt from classmates, but I still wore it. I commented on the picture that I still have the shirt, which I do, even though there's no chance of me fitting into it now. Several people commented that it was a cool-looking shirt. Basically, the way I see it, we were all ahead of the curve. Star Wars, comic characters, and other things that were just not cool for so long are now very popular. I haven't changed my preferences. For some reason, they're just more acceptable. So next time you get frustrated at the Furweather fan, remember that at least you were able to show some dedication through the hard years. During your read of Youngblood, you expressed frustration at not being able to follow the panels. My wife has the same issue you mentioned, but with normal comics. I can't explain it, but it can be frustrating because she shows me a page and has to ask me where to go from there. Keep up your great work on the show, Scott Finley. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Yeah, I've got pictures on Facebook of me being, what, 10 or 11 with Superman t-shirts on? Yeah. And Spider-Man t-shirts when I was a kid. I still have mine. I don't think I have either one of those shirts. No, no. (laughs) Because they wouldn't fit. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate your first email. They don't make it the last. Don't no. be a stranger. Especially if you're going to sympathise with me some more. That was, that was good. You like that, do you? Do, you yeah. like people feeling fine. Yeah, yeah. Which is different to people feeling you. Of which apparently you can get arrested for. And would be difficult through an email. Yeah, we don't encourage that. No. Chris Franklin has emailed in DC vs. Marvel, the dawn of the sales stunt. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Christopher. Just for the record, I've never made any bones about the fact Cindy's the brains of the operation. <laughs> the sign of a good man is the close proximity of a smarter woman. Yeah, I think your mum would agree with that, wouldn't you? I've only seen a handful of Galactica 1980s episodes, but I'd have to go with Coy and Vance being the worser scabs of the two. I remember being in tears, tears, when Bo and Luke left us with those fakers. The next day, the schoolyard was so aghast, I'm surprised the school counsellor didn't set up an emergency session to calm us all down. It was devastating! It was pretty bad, dude. Kai and Vance were just yeah. not good. I mean, at least Galactica 1980 was a different show. Yeah. So you can argue, oh, well, alright, it's a different show, different lead actors, bland substitute for Dirk Benedict in here. Insert bland substitute for Richard Hatch. Insert Long Green with a comedy beard. But it was a different show. But no, Dukes of Hazard. You, did you remember the first one? General Lee leaves town, right? And you just get a voiceover from Will and Jenny say, "Oh, Bo and Luke are leaving," <laughs> and you sat there going, "Wait a minute, they can't leave Hazard County because they're on parole. That's yeah. the whole point of the show, right?" And then these two new usurpers come in, right? And you're looking at them going, "You know, if I squint, they look exactly <laughs> like Schneider and Wopat." And then we sat through their adventures for fifteen long episodes. 15 long episodes of Coy and Vance Duke. Oh, I shudder just to think about it. In hindsight, Chris continues, Vance wasn't horrible, but Coy couldn't even act. 
My allegiance to the series ended with that premiere. I only occasionally watched the show that season. I'd never felt so vindicated when Scheider and Wopak came back. You know, just as an aside, yeah. they did do one of the best ever episodes after the Coy and Vance debacle. Because I just turned to make it up to the fans. Yeah, Happy Birthday General Lee is a great episode. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. It's so good, it's not actually like an episode of the Dukes of Hazard. Isn't that the origin? <laughs> yeah, it's the origin right, of General okay. Lee. I love that one, don't I? Yeah. I've watched that one a few times. You just kind of sit there going, oh God. Chris continued, here's a thought. The Dukes were all cousins to one another, which means that Jesse Duke had five brothers and apparently their spouses who died. Did a large moonshine still blow up? Ever since this thought occurred to me, it's always perplexed me. Coy and Vance really broke the bank in that regard as well. What kind of name is Coy? Isn't that a, isn't that a fish? Did his did his parents not run out of names? Coy and Vance. Yeah. I mean, you can't get better than Luke Duke. Oh no, that's just genius. Anyway, should we talk about some comics in Chris's email? DC versus Marvel, Marvel versus DC. I don't really have much to add to what you say. Your summation was dead on. It's not bad, but not great. There are flashes of brilliance, but overall it seems kind of rushed. I think it's partially because both companies were in a weird sort of place at the time, particularly Marvel. Claudio Castellani's art was technically well done, but his storytelling was a bit sloppy. And yes, his overly chiselled and arched bodies were a bit much. He seemed to be attempting to outdo Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. And in fact, I recall one panel of Batman that was a direct swipe from the Batman vs. Hulk treasury. The Ben Riley Peter Parker strangeness reminded me of the Mattel Secret Wars Iron Man figure. The back of the card listed Iron Man's secret ideas James Rhodes, who was Iron Man at the time, whilst Tony was off drunk in an alley somewhere. However, the little flicker tabs that came with the figure to be inserted into the Secret Shield accessory showed Tony Stark. Seems someone at Marvel and Mattel couldn't decide which way to go with this, much like Ben and Peter. Jubilee was the point-of-view character on the 90s X-Men cartoon and was therefore pretty popular at the time. I think that was the only reason she was included. Well, that and her female Robin look, thanks to Jim Lee. The romance was sweet, but it did seem wrong, since Tim was already struggling with his feelings for Ariana and Stephanie at the time. Andy, I was the other guy who got the Scarecrow Mrs. King reference. (laughs) My mum loved that show. I'd like to see Lee Stetson. That was his name. Bruce Parks liked to play Lee Stetson. Why? Why do I remember <laughs> stuff like that? Because Kate Jackson was um, Amanda. Was she Amanda King? I don't know. Something like that. Why am I asking you? That's you weren't even alive. <laughs> Bruce Parks liked to did that after he did bring them back alive. Okay. And after Tron. All right. <laughs> I know from Tron. Should we do the and Babylon Five? You know from Babylon yeah, Five. Well, should we do the the Bruce Parks like the career podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The career of Bruce Box like that. I'd like to hear you guys tackle the Amalgam comics as a follow-up. Don't forget the second wave. There was another Super Soldier comic, which was great. An animated style Dark Claw issue and the greatness that was Kurt Busiek and Paul Smith's Iron Lantern. Looking forward to your Mystery 200th episode, Chris Franklin. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We appreciate you taking us down the tangent that was Kai advanced. Do you know, I need to do a Palace of Glitter and Delights about the Dukes of Hazard, don't I? About Coy and Vance, or... God, no. <laughs> I'm going anywhere. They're Coy and frickin' Vance. <laughs> Are they the one thing you wish wish one more day had erased? <laughs> <laughs> you see, in the Marvel Universe, for all I know, it did. Yeah. For all I know, that entire fifth season of the Dukes of Vance just doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be in Marvel Oh, to be in Marvel continuity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mephisto got rid of Coy and Vance Duke. <laughs> There are probably people who have tried to make deals with the devil. <laughs> oh, 
you know what I love about the DVD releases as well? They don't have Kyan Vance on the cover. It's just a shot of Daisy. Oh, they're still in it, though. Yeah, well, they're in the episodes. Maybe they need to lure them in. They need to sell the DVDs. <laughs> so it's just a shot of Daisy wearing very short shorts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The shorter they are, the more desperate they are. Yeah, yeah. well, they got shorter as the show went on. So there Probably you go. to keep you watching. More than likely. Gene Hendricks emailed in also about DC vs. Marvel. A&M. That's almost rude. <laughs> you know this was a stunt. I know it was a stunt. And it was a stunt. But I think I like the aftermath better than the item itself. I remember thinking at the time that there were some fight results that simply didn't make sense and the whole universe personified by a robot thing was really tedious. I wanted Comic Book Fight Club, trademark the Quantum Cast, and I got Bad Plot to try and explain the fights, but very little fighting. The Amalgam line, though, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah, the Dark Claw issue wasn't all that great, but the rest of the line, Super Soldier, Iron Lantern, Doctor Strange, Fate, etc., are all quite good, and showed not only a love of the characters, but a detailed knowledge of the history. If I had to endure the four issues of DC vs. Marvel to get to those mashups, I think it was worth it. Gene Hendricks, who hosts the Hammer Strikes podcast, and the Quantum Cast, and Anime Freaks, all on the Two True Freaks network, which means he's very, very busy. Oh, he's got a PS. PS, Aquaman didn't cheat by using his telepathy any more than Namor would have cheated if he thought to fly. Besides, Aquaman and Namor are equal in power level, strength, invulnerability, etc. But Namor has the handicap of being bipolar. Thank you, John Byrne. But I'm an Aquaman supporter from way back. Winky face. Sorry, no. La 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 la. I can't hear you. Namor would have kicked Aquaman's ass. Do you smell that? What? It smells like denial. <laughs> Not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Evans emailed in the fight wasn't the only fish he won I think we've uh, kicked up a hornet's nest though <laughs> by saying Aquaman cheated haven't we yeah. do you think I did that deliberately maybe to wind up the Aquaman contingent who are very vocal and loyal yeah. to their hero because not that there's anything wrong with that he, he very obviously did not cheat no he, he totally didn't cheat at all he didn't cheat no he didn't no he didn't, no, he didn't. He didn't. absolutely no way whatsoever no. Nemo was beaten fur and square he was <laughs> Hello, lovely Leyland. Hello, Matt. Your Marvel versus DC show was a delight and most timely. This very book was sitting atop a pile of old tat headed for the charity shop when your episode dropped and gave it a temporary reprieve. Ultimately, this was a very silly, cynical and forgettable series of flimsy excuses and largely underwhelming fights, with a couple of exceptions. Thor, Captain Marvel and Batman Cap were pretty good. Couched in a whole load of forgettable cosmic bum dribble. <laughs> I love the word bum dribble. <laughs> as for the bouts themselves, I agree. Much as I like Aquaman, especially the 90s hook hand version, Namor was robbed. The Avenging Sun is a true titan, the classic anti-hero, the Black Adam of the Marvel Universe, and will not be taken down by a bit of blubber and a glorified haddock psychiatrist. But I must speak up in defense of Lobo. Oh, Matt, you were doing so well. <laughs> Much as he was often a ridiculous parody character, and rightly so, he was actually used to great effect in Legion 89, etc., which, if you've never read it, I would highly recommend. Of course, this was before Lobo was overexposed and Deadpoolized. We need to get that made into a proper word as well, though. In the dictionary. 
Deadpool eyes. Yeah, d- definition. The overexposure of a character. Yeah, see Joker eyes. <laughs> His role in the series was that of an unstoppable killing machine mercenary who was repeatedly manipulated into helping the team by the ultra-Machiavellian, Kulun bastard, Viral Dox, ancestor of the Legion of Superheroes Brainiac 5. This makes for some interesting tension as Lobo hates Dox and everyone else in Legion, but various tricks and mind games are used to ensure his dangerous loyalty. It's all intrigue and lies in amoral conniving, like the thick of it or the West Wing, only with aliens and made-up swearing. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't the thick of it made-up swearing? No, the thick of it takes swearing and elevates it to art. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Much in the same way Batty Artist did in Spartacus. But the thick of it was just glorious in its profanity. It's got new lease on life because of Peter Capaldi being the doctor, hasn't it? Yeah. We used to watch that before. I've started watching it. It's very funny. Yeah. (laughs) As for the Lobo-Wolverine fight, this is an even bigger steal than Namor. You'll note that at that point in time, Wolverine had had his adamantium ripped out through his nostrils and bumhole by Magneto. (laughs) I'm fuzzy on the details. So was in bone claw mode. What's that? Was he in bone claw mode in DC vs. Marvel? I don't remember. I did not notice if he was. No. I'm pretty convinced he was, because it wasn't mentioned anywhere, was it? Was that not a few years later, though? Ah, uh, not according to Matt. Because Origin made a big deal out of it. Yeah, but it wasn't Origin showing that he had those to begin with. Right. Which means he had his claws from the beginning, which I believe is a retcon, isn't it? Yeah, because didn't they make the thing where the adamantium laces his bone structure? Yeah. yeah. And his claws were added later. Wasn't originally, it was his healing factor that it was his mutant power. Right. And they covered him in adamantium to make him a soldier. Right. I think, but then Origin establishes that he always had the bone claws. Yeah, I thought that. Mm, so he that's has, a retcon, I think. He bone claws and then he's completely laced. Mm. But I'm sure in the original conception he didn't have the claws. Right. Okay. His mutant power was his healing factor. Yeah. And they added all that later. But I could be wrong, obviously I've never read Origin, it looked, it looked like crap. <laughs> Yeah. Six issues of This is Wolverine before he was Wolverine. Six issues of Andrew going. <sighs> Luke, Luke, he was a farmer. It's like a, a, a reverse Josie Wales. <laughs> Only not as good because in Josie Wales, all that stuff's done before the opening <laughs> credits. Six issues of pre credit. How delightful. Anyway. Indecised. <laughs> there you go, Matt. You've invented something. Anyway, uh, Matt continues. There's quite a difference between a short, hurry man with unbreakable bones and a fistful of foot-long razors and a short, hurry man with basically a bunch of spur ribs strapped to his knuckles. What you've got, though, Logan, is not so much a weapon but a compound fracture. Lobo, on the other hand, is a serious powerhouse, able to go toe-to-toe with the likes of Superman, Lar Gand and Captain Marvel. At one point, he would regenerate a new Lobo from a drop of blood that was spilt, although I think that ability may have been removed by this time. Point is, one solid punch from Lobo would reduce Wolverine and his just bone bones to haggis. Sure, he'd heal, but probably not before the end of the decade, but hey, sensible and viable outcomes would not be in keeping with the raison d'etre of Marvel vs. DC. One more note on the 90s episode, I know it's sick and wrong, but I love the electro-gliding blue Superman costume. In fact, it's my favourite Superman incarnation. I think most of this is due to how he was drawn in JLA by Howard Porter, who had a knack for making somewhat ridiculous things look really cool, and Superman having energy powers seemed to really fire up Grant Morrison's imagination, leading to scenes with the giant electromagnet he built to stop the moon crashing into the Earth. Goofy, yes, but a ton of fun too. Anyway, I'll leave it there as last time I took up far too much of your episode with my ramblings. All the best, Matt. 
P.S. Don't think you got away with sneaking in that little reference to Withnail and I in this episode. Like you are to himself, I see all. Especially when you insert lines from a film I've seen 150 times. I, I like that somebody got my Withnail and I reference. P.P.S. I must confess to skipping the Velvet episode. This is not a slight. The first volume is near the top of my reading pile, so I don't want to be spoiled. I look forward to checking out both the book and your no doubt more or less eloquent assessment in due course. <laughs> Yeah, if you go into it thinking it's going to be more or less eloquent and lead towards the less, (laughs) then you'll be better eat, as they say up north. Thank you, Matt. That was funny. I enjoyed that. Right, we'll knock it on the head there. We'll plug a show. It will be a fantastic podcast show about something genre-related. I have no idea what. Maybe I'll stick something in I've never done before. Okay. Or maybe I'll put a trailer in we've heard a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Who knows? (laughs) Not me. Be a couple of days for even edit this. Uh, we'll do that and we'll be right back with our conclusion of the 1980s. Gathered together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. The Toy Geek Scott, the award-winning radio host Jeff, Scott's minion And Ron, just Ron Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind It's Dinner for Geeks Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. 1989 saw a reborn Marvel Comics. New editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco didn't believe there was such a thing as flooding the market, and suddenly every Marvel title had the potential to be a franchise. Marvel's lineup then started to sound like a football score rundown. The Nam 2, Spider-Man 4, Conan 3, G.I. Joe 4, Punisher 3, X-Men 6... Captain America concluded an interesting arc replacing Steve Rogers, and David Michelini and Bob Layton had Tony Stark shot in a run almost as good as their original back in the early 80s. Daredevil was also in an interesting place again, with Anne Machenti's issues based stories and John Ramuta Jr.'s ever-evolving artwork. The Punisher especially was starting to emerge as a breakout character, with two titles, The Punisher and Punisher War Journal, featuring early art from Jim Lee. The character also had two hardcover graphic novels, Return to Big Nothing and Assassin's Guild, which, whilst tame today, were more violent than the normal fur. The Spider-Man storyline, Craven's Last Hunt, also had a hardcover reprint, and there was an original graphic novel, Parallel Lines, detailing the retconned history of Murray Jane. This was also the year that Marvel published their more successful titles 16 times a month, going bi-weekly over summer for extended storylines. John Byrne returned to Marvel to launch She-Hulk in her own book again, take over Avengers West Coast, and prepare a new Namor the Submariner series, as well as sliding in a few issues of Wolverine. Also, ALF was inexplicably popular this year. A young kid named Todd McFarlane was also starting to make a name for himself. 
Over in DC, there was a little more diversity. The regular superhero comics were perhaps becoming a little darker with the death of Robin, voted for by the readers, and Superman exiling himself for Earth after murdering some criminals. The first seeds of Vertigo were planted with the debut of Sandman and the miniseries like Black Orchid and V for Vendetta. Even mainstream fur like Green Arrow and Doom Patrol were maturing thanks to Mike Grell and Grant Morrison respectively. Looking at the DC books for the year, one can argue this is the point where DC started to take itself a little too seriously in its quest to prove that comics weren't just for kids. We can see them trying a little too hard in the direction of maturity, and in many ways, the current DC comics are an outgrowth of decisions made here. Still, the bottom line is a lot of DC's comics at this time were good. The Superman titles, the Batman titles, the more light-hearted Justice League, The Flash, Wonder Woman, surprisingly, Suicide Squad, Animal Man and Green Arrow were all great reads. And with Peter David returning to Star Trek and the debut of Elseworlds in all but name, DC had a pretty good year. Superman likewise had a really good 1989. With Action Comics now a weekly anthology title, The Man of Steel only had two monthly comics, and the creative team weaved an excellent tale of exile through the books. Upon his return to Earth, he also returned to Action Comics, with a splendid George Perez cover recreation of Superman No. 1, being only the first in a long line of excellent covers Perez would contribute to the title. If The Man of Tomorrow had started the decade in a slightly stagnant state, 1989 proved it was just a slump, and he could be great again. Superman issue 28 cover dated February 1989 as a homage to Jim Steranko's famous Nick Fury cover by Kerry Gamble and Dennis Yankee. Superman is flying through space as this is a post-crisis Superman. He has to wear breathing apparatus linked to oxygen tanks on his belt as the Earth recedes into the background and the moon is above him. I think it's absolutely lovely, but I'm a mark for Kerry Gamble. What did you think? I really liked it. Did you? Mm. I thought you had a problem with it being a Steranko homage. Uh, no, I had, a, I, I had a bit of a problem with it being a Marvel homage. Oh, I didn't mind that too much. Uh, I, I, I kind of... It's alright when they do it in company. Right. You just thought it was a little bit odd them doing it. A yeah. DC comic doing a homage to a Marvel cover. And it looks like Steranko. You think? See, I think it looks like Kerry Gamble, but... I don't know. I'm I like at, Kerry Gamble's. I'm looking at it thinking it's Steranko. Alright. Speaking of which, was it not his birthday today? Is it? I well, as it, we record this, or as yeah, this goes up? As, as we record it. Happy birthday, Steranka. I, I love it. I, think the, the, I love that the moon covers the top quarter of the boot. I like that they've drawn the earth with a cloud layer, yeah. which you don't normally see. It's very cinematic without being a poster cover. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's very, yeah, cinematic's a good word. I love it. I think it's great. Absolutely fantastic. I like as well, they've got that Marvel corner box thing going on. Yeah. That didn't last long. Do not. No, I don't recall that lasting long at all, which is a shame because it's quite good in time. Mm. I quite like it. We closed the year with comics now costing 50 pence. How much have they gone up? They would cost 15p when right. we started this series in 1981. So they've tripled in price nearly. Is that near to now, do you think? Or have they, over this decade, have they quadrupled in price? They've, they've probably done a lot more than that. Probably, I don't know. Because I don't remember what the... What was the American price? Because this was 75 cents. Were they... 25 cents? 30 cents? Yeah. Yeah. And now they're a fiver. 
Yeah, a £5 <laughs> per issue. Anyway, Superman in Exile is written by Roger Sturt and with art by Kerry Gamble and Brett Reading. Superman stands on a threshold, both literally and figuratively. Stood on a tumbling rock, he watches our fragile planet and ponders the events of the past few weeks from space. His murder of the Phantom Zone criminals to prevent them regaining their Kryptonian powers and decimating Earth hangs heavy in his mind. A mind recently torn asunder by Brainiac. With his personality fractured, Superman decides he needs to leave Earth for a while. He has set plans in motion to cover Clark Kent's absence, a series of articles exposing intergang which Martha Kent will mail to Perry White at regular intervals, and with that, he presses his teleportation button and leaves our small blue orb behind. Appearing above a new world, the gravity pulls him down. He manages to pull out of the fall before he ends up a red and blue smear on a distant world, a barren and inhospitable landscape. Superman decides not to remain and teleports out. Superman reappears, this time within a star's gravity well. The yellow star bathes Superman in radiant energy, boosting his power levels, and with this boost he manages to slingshot away, teleporting as he goes. Back on Earth, Lex Luthor attends to Brainiac, whose mind is now linked to Superman. Brainiac awakens to tell Luthor that Superman is gone. Other subplots occur concerning Morgan Edge and Matthew Stockton, P.I., but several galaxies away, Superman appears around a habited world, where, in an example of history repeating, he saves an alien space plane. Yet again, the race are stunned by the flying man, and yet again, our hero, overwhelmed, flees. Back on Earth, one of those bubbling subplots comes to a boil, as Matthew Stockton, investigating Clark at the behest of Amanda McCoy, is shot dead in Clark's apartment in a case of mistaken identity. Clark's intergang expose has claimed its first victim. Kerry Gamble is one of comics' most underrated artists. I loved his work on Power Man and Iron Fist, I loved it on Marvel Team-Up, and I love it here. The splash page is especially lovely. There's a melancholy feel to it that gives it some weight, and Superman stood upon a tumbling rock in space with the sun in the background and a grim look of determination on his face is perfection. I've got no idea how his cape is flapping in the breeze in space. But it always finds a way to. Yeah, but that's just nitpicking, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And there's not much to it, is there? No. Why is simplicity sometimes magnificent? Nothing's taken away from the image. Mm, it's just a glorious piece of art. Uh, three pages to bring us up to speed on the ongoing events in Superman's life may seem a bit much. Mm. But there was a lot going on. Yeah. At this point. Did you follow this, okay? Uh, reasonably, yeah. Did you need these three pages, or had you read all this before? Um, I'd have just been alright with, uh, Superman killed off the Phantom Zone people. <laughs> Superman kills somebody. Yeah. And now he's, oh, woe is me. That's reason enough to go into exile. Is it? I mean, think about it nowadays, if he killed off someone who would go into the Phantom Zone, then, you know, he might have to go in exile from fans on the internet. <laughs> So the internet is the new bad guy. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Uh, looking at the Daily Planet building on page six, I'm not entirely convinced that building is structurally sound. Yeah. You know, you've got a big chunk of the building missing. The Daily Planet globe is precariously balanced on the roof. Yeah. And yet there are people in the offices. No, those are not workers. No, I don't think there are people in the offices. Yeah, would they say on the floors lower down? I mean, do you really? Would you want to be in that building? Would you want to be in the Baxter building? That's all right. <laughs> At least the Baxter building is not falling to pieces around your ears. I guess yeah. That building's collapsing. It's being rebuilt. For your good luck, before it gets trashed again in Action Comics Seven Hundred. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> got a while yet, but it does get trashed again. It's like the helicarrier. It just keeps on being <laughs> down. Yeah, the helicarrier's fine. There's four engines. <laughs> Nothing will ever go wrong. Uh, I like that Clark sets up his cover. Yeah. He sets up that he's in deep cover infiltrating into gang, which I, I've got to be honest, I felt kind of undercut the story a little. Superman seems to imply he's never coming back, doesn't yeah. he? If that's the case, why bother with the Clark Kent ruse? Mm. Just covering his ass. Probably, just in case he yeah. decides to come back. Maybe in his last Instagram report he says he got killed off. Well, that's where this goes. Right. The guy killed in Clark Kent's apartment, right? Matthew yeah. Stockton. People think he is Clark. Well, I did I did think in this issue he looked remarkably like him. Yeah, it was a real stroke of luck, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, the subplot is they think Clark is dead. Right. Which covers his ass while he's away being Superman on other planets. I was lucky for him. Mm. Worked out really well for him, didn't it? Yeah. Who'd have thought your inadvertent death would actually work out well for you? I mean, it didn't work well for the PI. No, no, sadly, death. (laughs) Not like we can do about that. That's not Superman's fault. True, yeah. You know, he probably goes, I'm very upset about that. I'll I'll go to another exile. (laughs) No, I was thinking, Mum, what's for tea? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't know him, did he? No. His fault. Um, Nice touch that he keeps teleporting near gravity wells. So the implication is that the teleporter homes in. Yeah. on gravitational bodies which explains why he keeps appearing near habitated or even unhabitated planets yeah. it's attracted to that so I thought that was cool because having him just appear in space and him go right nothing here click yeah. poof <laughs> right nothing here click poof Yeah. nothing here either click <laughs> poof that would be a really boring issue wouldn't it it would have been a Bendis 12 issue <laughs> series though it would have been an issue of Invincible as well, let's be fair. <laughs> so I'll just slag off Bendis, other people do it as well. One of the elements I really did appreciate about this issue, and is really subtly handed by Stern, subtly handled, sorry. Presumably the further Superman gets away from our yellow sun, the weaker he's going to come. Mm. Right, he's going to become. So what Stern does is basically throw him into a yellow sun very early on in the story. Yeah. So that for the rest of the adventure he's pumped up. Mm. And I, I thought this was a pretty good sequence, all the stuff with the sun. Reminded me of Sunshine. You know the Danny Boyle movie? Yeah. Yeah, watch that. Yeah. It's a good film, that. Mm-hmm. Very underrated Danny Boyle movie. I like it a lot. Yeah, the scene where he's pulled into the heart of the star and he has to fight his way through. I thought it was great. So this not being the Superman, you can just fly through stars? No, he's post-crisis now, dude. Okay. He's a lot weaker. Why does his cape not burn? Why does his costume not burn? Well, the costume is, is close to him. They've established his aura. Right, okay. Protects his costume. Does his aura not go around his cape? No. Because it's pretty silly anyway, so they might as well extend it to his cape. <laughs> if you're going to be silly, be <laughs> completely silly. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? I mean, you, well, I mean why limit our silliness? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, what's the point of saying he protects his, his costume and not his cape? Just go for the full costume. Well, that was in Man of Steel, that the aura protects stuff that's close to his skin. Yeah. Because Byrne thought it was silly that his costume was made of Kryptonian fabric. I guess, but why specifically not his cape? Because that's not right near him. All right, have a think about this for a second. Byrne invented that because he thought it was silly that his costume was made of Kryptonian fabric. Okay. Which is sillier? Yeah. An aura that protects him from dirt and dust or his costume is made from Kryptonian fabric? the fact that it's his 
outfit, but not his cost, not his cape. Is he? It just it brings more attention to the fact that it's silly. <laughs> just say the full costume, that'll be all right. Yeah, well, Mark Kent had to keep making him cape. What, what about the reason Mark and Mark Kent were almost destitute? Yeah, is they were keeping <laughs> Superman in capes. Fair enough. You didn't think that through, did you, Mister Burn? What about later on when he grows his mullet? Does his aura protect the end of his hair? Oh, or, or, oh. Only, or only the hair connected to his head? Not a mullet, it was long hair. <laughs> Nightwing had a mullet. Me and Mike Bailey have got each other's back on that. Okay, okay. Nightwing had a mullet. Right. Peter Parker had a mullet. Right. Sadly. Clark had long hair. Maybe Clark had a mullet but pulled it off better. That's possible. Yeah. Maybe he just had long hair that he could pass as a mullet, you know, if he's, he's pushed it yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. If he wanted to have business in the front. Yeah, all of that crap. Uh, Amanda McCoy, who hires Matthew Stockton, P.I. If I was a P.I., I would introduce myself as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Matthew Stockton, P.I. P.I. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I'm tone. Well, do you, think, do you think he dies at the end of the pilot? <laughs> that would be a most unfortunate series. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, Amanda McCoy will end up dead over da- in Dark Knight over Metropolis. Okay. Remember? No. She's the person who's killed at the beginning of Dark Knight over Metropolis who has the Kryptonian ring. Oh, right. That's Amanda McCoy. Right, okay. So they get rid of her quickly. No, Dark Knight over Metropolis is ages away from this, isn't it? Is she, does she isn't pop- Dark Knight over Metropolis 92 or 93? Does she pop up in it? Is it 91? Yeah, this investigation will bubble along. Right, okay. And she actually comes from Superman issue 2. Right. So this storyline's quite old at this point. Yeah. And will continue for some extended time, yeah. I always wondered if she owed a name to Star Trek. Because in an unproduced Star Trek script for the third season, Dr. McCoy's daughter was named Amanda. Right. And was supposed to be on the show, Amanda McCoy. And Lex's personal physician is Dr. Kelly. Yeah. Forrest Kelly played Dr. McCoy. Okay. I always wondered if there was some connection there. Mm. Maybe it's only me that wonders that, I don't know. Um, even down to the panel progression, on pages 18 and 19, Gamel echoes the events of Man of Steel number one, which can be pretty neat, but can you imagine the urban legends that sprang up around Superman's appearance here? Yeah. He was this planet's Roswell, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This alien planet has a Roswell story, and it's of a mysterious caped man who came and saved a space plane. Yeah. And as you get generations down the line, people are like, ah, that's bollocks. Unless this was the start of a new religion on this planet. <laughs> it could have been that as well. Supermanism. Yeah, that would totally work. Yeah. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I mean, it doesn't sound like it, because we've kind of took the piss quite a lot, but we did. Uh, well, I did. The art uh, is superlative. The script is telling a very different story to the kinds we were getting at the beginning of the decade. And the juggling of plot and subplot is handled exceptionally well. Over the course of this decade, Superman has grown from the Bronze Age interpretation, which, with but a new lick of paint, wasn't that different to the Silver Age, and the post-crisis revamp, whatever one felt about it at the time, gave the character a much-needed shot in the arm. Whilst there wasn't really a growth of character to chart, thanks to Superman being updated almost overnight, the results led to a reinvigorated character and creative teams that took Superman to new heights. This was groundbreaking back in 1986, but one can argue this has led us to a situation where lazy writers can now just junk everything and start over without having to work with what is already established. None of this is Superman's fault, and later events should not take away from what was a successful and entertaining era for the Man of Steel. Did you enjoy this issue? I did. It's good, isn't it? I thought it focused more on Earth than Superman. Did you? A little bit, yeah. There's only four pages sat on Earth, Uh and three of those follow the Matthew Stockton plot. Yeah. 
There's only one page of Perry White. I don't know, maybe, maybe it just felt long when I was reading it. Maybe, that's entirely possible. It's a good issue, though. Yeah, yeah. And this may be my favourite of the Superman ones that we've covered mm. over the five. Jerry Ordway's art kind of saved Adventures of Superman 44. Yeah. Because that was very overwrought. This was great. This was absolutely fantastic. I really did love it. Superman The Letter Column. Presumably a homage to Superman the movie. Oh, Legion. Legion 89. Which uh, Matt mentioned in his email. Mm-hmm. Uh, Power of the Atom. Roger Stern. Which is apparently quite a good series. The Huntress. Gets her own mini. In the adverts. The Daily Planet is talking about Invasion Aftermath. We don't talk about Invasion anymore, though, do we? Do we not? No, I don't think anyone mentions that. Suicide Squad got an advert. I probably liked Invasion. Was that Invasion or Millennium? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's Millennium that we don't yeah. talk about, isn't it? Peter David. No, Mark Verhaden writes The Phantom, which DC had the rights to at this point. As good as Superman was this year, 1989 was the year of the bat. The beginning of a celebration that has hardly let up since. Tim Burton's movie Batman, starring Michael Keaton in the title role and Jack Nicholson as a scene-stealing Joker, ruled the box office and established comic book properties as hot. In the comics, the series was at a high point as well. Robin's death was voted for by readers, which was a media event, even if the story, A Death in the Family, wasn't really that good. The fallout was felt over the course of the next year, with a lonely place of dying running through Batman and establishing why Batman needs a Robin, and Year 3 finally giving the reader a post-crisis take on Dick Grayson's origins. The celebrations around Batman's 50th birthday also included a greatest stories ever told for both the Dark Knight and the Clown Prince of Crime, the Joker, in two definitive tomes that have rarely been beaten in terms of content since, despite numerous attempts to do so. Detective Comics celebrated 600 issues and kind of did its own thing. If Batman was the comic that was setting out continuity and retelling old stories, then Detective Comics, written by Alan Grant and drawn by Norm Brayfogle, established itself the old-fashioned way. It told good stories. Detective Comics issue 601 was covered dated June 1989. It's all over the front page. Batman's got road rage on a cover by Norm Brayfogle. Batman is being challenged to race for pinks by a Ferrari Testarossa. As the Ferrari and the Batmobile kiss fenders, an angry Batman glares at his opponent as headlights cause lens flare, streetlights zoom past like stars at warp speed, and cats in the middle of the road had better flee. A clue to the story is evident in a piece of street trash blowing past which states, Visit Magnificent Tibet. It's a good cover, almost abstract but colourful and intriguing. That would have been much better if it said Tahiti. It's a magical place. <laughs> you like the cover? Yeah. It's great, isn't it? It's very stylized. Very well. It's uh, Norm Brayfogle. Yeah. So, it <laughs> could be his middle name. <laughs> Norm Stylized Brayfogle. Tulpa, part one, Monster Maker, was written by Alan Grant with art by Norm Brayfogle and Steve Mitchell. In The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight is challenged to a race at the lights by a driver of Ferrari Testarossa. The Batman gets over being stunned by the challenge's effrontery as he watches the Ferrari burn him off. The Batman pursues not because his bat ego just took a burning, but because of the dangers the street race opposes to innocence. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right, yeah. The cops see the two vehicles speed by and reckon that this is their chance to hit a superhero with a speeding ticket. The Ferrari is about to careen into a bus, so the Batmobile pulls some neat trickery with balloons and parachutes, kicking the Ferrari into an alleyway and saving the passengers. Batman leaps from the Batmobile to the now-trashed car, but as he apprehends the driver, he crumbles to dust in the Batman's hands. 
Across town, a man called Tenzin is visited by three leg breakers looking to collect their debt. Tenzin owes five large, and these men ain't the forgiving type. When Tenzin says he doesn't have the money, tell Jabba. The leg breakers take it out on Tenzin, but Tenzin says the money's coming any minute now. Honest! The leg breakers therefore decide to wait for a while. Batman and the cops, meanwhile, have trapped the owner of the Ferrari, who wasn't even aware it was missing. Somebody with far too much money. Something else was missing. Five grand from his house safe. Although the other money in the safe was left untouched, as were his collection of priceless vases. With no further leads, the Batman heads for home. The cops are miffed that they forgot to give him a speeding ticket. Tenzin, meantime, is recovering from the beating he was given when his man didn't show up. Using Tibetan mysticism, he conjures up another tulpa and sets him a new target, Wayne Manor. That night, the tulpa breaks into the manor as Alfred sleeps, but the alarm warns Alfred of guests. He confronts the tulpa, but the creature gains the upper hand and flees again without the money. Alfred contacts Batman, who tracks the tulpa thanks to a homing beacon Alfred placed in his pocket. The Batman loses the signal as Tenzin destroys his newest creation, annoyed that yet again he has come up short of cash. The Batman has the general area though and stalks the area as Tenzin, fearful of the leg breaker's return, concentrates and prepares to summon forth a creature far more deadly than the Tulpa. Uh, the first page, in fact the opening couple of pages for that matter, are uh, Fast and Furious, barely yeah. early, with the uh, Batman as Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, Batman is mildly surprised that someone is speaking to him and challenging him to a race. Yeah, I mean, does he, is it me or did he start to enjoy this? Probably until he realizes that people are going to get hurt and then he shuts it down. Well, he, maybe he doesn't have have fun enough, so this is his opportunity to have fun and take the criminal down. Yeah, well, I love the guy in the Ferrari. Hey, want to match him? And Batman's like. <laughs> you talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> the guy there should have followed it with, I don't see anyone else around here. Must be talking to you. And Batman's, don't be stupid. <laughs> Want a race? <laughs> don't be stupid, I'd win. <laughs> and I love Batman's thinking, he, he like clocks up the Ferrari's specs. Five liter engine, 50 miles an hour in under six seconds. Top speed of shade over 180. I always wondered how the Batmobile would fare against illustrious company. <laughs> and races him? Yeah. <laughs> and there is some really quite a cool comedy with the cops just watching the Ferrari blitz past. And then the Batmobile. Mm. And Batman's speeding. And he's got a real Adam West moment where he goes, I hope those cops realise I'm doing this for the best of reasons. <laughs> Come on, that's a bit campy. Yeah. But it was funny. It was. And it was fun. I, 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 I did like this opening bit. I did. Um, Breffogel's art is just the right side of cartoony, isn't it? Batman's expressions are what makes it mm. as well. But it turns to hammer horror when the guy just disintegrates in his hand. Yeah. So he can pull out the horrific bits when he wants to. Which, it was a really good opening. Mm. Not what you expect from a Batman comic. No. Vin Diesel and uh, The Rock is in the Fast and the Furious films now and yeah. he's racing each other. Is <laughs> not what you expect from a Batman comic. It's not. And I do like the Ferrari Testarossa. Yeah. Do you like the Ferrari Testarossa? I do. It's not muscle enough. It's not, but remember Kavinsky, the musician? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has a Ferrari Testarossa. I prefer Kowalski. Yeah. He has a Dodge Challenger. Okay. You ever seen Vanishing Pint? I've not. Not left. Uh, the cops are quite funny, which I thought was uh, interesting. One of them wants to slap a speeding ticket on the Batmobile, and not for any malicious reason. Yeah. He just thinks it'd be fun to ticket a, a cop, uh, to ticket Batman, sorry. There is that, but also Batman speeding. 
There is that if, as well. If Batman is going to claim to be the good guy, he mm. has to drive within the right circle. Yeah, alright, fair enough. <laughs> I just wanted him to ask him for his driver's licence. Yeah. What would he do? Does Bat- Did Batman have to, to learn how to drive? That's what I mean. Does Batman have a driving licence in the name Batman? <laughs> <laughs> like in, like George Clooney has the credit card. Yeah. Batman has a driver's licence with Batman written on it. Would it not be man comma bat? <laughs> No, they never they never ask that question. Yeah, do they? Does, they never ask the question. Does, does he Bruce Wayne license? have a driving license? Bruce Wayne would have one. Yeah, Bruce Wayne drives cars. Well, they've established he can drive, but he always gets Alfred to do it. Yeah, but he still have to have a driver's license. Otherwise, in Nightfall, how could he say he crashed the Porsche? Oh, fair. Because he did, he didn't learn how to drive. <laughs> yeah, the L plates on a Porsche. <laughs> yeah. It's the kind of ostentatious thing Bruce Wayne would do, <laughs> probably, isn't it? That's quite true. Uh, I did like that the other cop was was a bit of a bat fan. Yeah, he was like, "We can't slap a ticket on Batman." Mm. And first guy's like, "Guy's speeding, dude. <laughs> Don't care who he is." Uh, Grant does a good job with the characterization of the leg breakers as well, all of whom he gives a distinct personality and makes them seem quite charming long before Tarantino or The Sopranos. Mm. They're still scum, yeah, but he gives them personality and character. And there's some lovely visual gags throughout the entire comic. Michael, you've already mentioned the. Um, the facial expressions on Batman, mm. which uh, border on gurning yeah. at times. But uh, there's a brilliant bit where they, they confront the owner of the Ferrari and he drops a priceless spode. And Batman, you don't see him catch it on panel, you just see him placing it back, back carefully, yeah. implying that he caught it later, which was funny. And uh, the guy's reaction to losing his Ferrari, there's a two-year waiting list! And Batman, you can just imagine Batman looking at him with utter contempt. Yeah. I hate you. You're kind. <laughs> Brave Hogle does a good job with the entrance to the Batcave, which apparently is a hologram. I love Poison Ivy keep off. That was quite funny. Yeah. I don't know if it was meant to be. The thing with it being a hologram, doesn't that mean birds can just fly through it? Yeah, yeah. I like the, the TV show where the cave moves. Yeah. I was always a sucker for that. I thought that was good. Some excellent dialogue between Bruce and Alfred. Do you expect to find any answers tonight, sir? I don't expect anything, Alfred. I accept what the night brings. I like that. Mm. I thought that was a lovely line. Oddest between the two of them. And another great line when Batman's punching out the criminals later on. If I had a penny for every time I've heard that, the Batman states after a crook threatens him, I'd pay your dentist bill. (laughs) Funny! Batman being funny! Love it! A very curious blend of hammer horror. And Adam West. Mm. And that it works despite this clash of of tones. Tenzin's beating was actually quite bloody. But the idea of Batman just cruising around Gotham and getting engaged in a street race, plus his chummy, chummy relationship with the police and the bored disinterest of the passers-by, was very amusing, yeah. wasn't it? This is a Batman comfortable with who he is. Not an urban legend or a fearful creature of the night. The cops like him. The man whose Ferrari was stolen seems totally nonplussed mm. by the fact that Batman's in his house. <laughs> and he takes men disintegrating all in his stride. Oddly, he's not as dark and brooding as he was in the Black Mask issue mm. that we covered last time. And it's it seems weird to me that Batman lightened up in the latter part of the 80s, before the 90s kicked him back into being the Dark Avenger. Yeah. Isn't it? It was, it was, I enjoyed this. There's some nice humour in this as well. Brofogel's art is pleasing. It's a little disjointed. Mm. Did you not think? 
I love it. Yeah. Um, over the 80s, the Batman has gone from being very Marvel-influenced in its approach with subplots and interlinked titles back to being very episodic and rather disconnected from the larger DCU and even the other Batman comics, essentially. They've turned it into the Batman of the 70s again. As the 90s began, Batman stories will evolve yet again, although crucially, Batman's a much more static character than Superman or Spider-Man or the X-Men. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's so popular. Could be. You can just pick up a Batman comic from pretty much any decade and yeah. not really feel that like you've missed anything. Mm. You can read a Batman story from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and Bruce Wayne's Batman. He's a millionaire. He dresses as a bat to fight crime. That's all you need to know. There's no complicated subplots. There's no, he's got married now, or no, he's not. Yeah. There's none of that, is there? No. Batman is Batman. I'd, I'd say there's still things you've missed out on. Yeah, but it doesn't matter, does it? I don't know. Sometimes. The episodic nature of Batman... Yeah. This isn't very different from Batman of the eight of the seventies and certainly the seventies. Actually, I, no. I think you can pick a Batman comic up from any year and it don't matter. I'd say from the nineties to the two thousands, that's not as true. You think? Yeah. Why? Because you pick up a Batman title from the nineties. Why has he got all this armor and claws? You pick it up and why is Bruce Wayne? I know, but story-wise, he's still Batman. Do you know what I mean? I guess you may have to tie yourself in knots a little bit as to why Robin's not Dick Grayson anymore. Or why is Batman Dick Grayson? Or yeah. why is Bruce Wayne a pirate? Well, that was only... Well, that's an Elseworld. <laughs> no, it's not. Was it now? Oh, right. Return of Bruce, Bruce, Return of Bruce yeah, Wayne. Yeah, yeah alright. That convoluted story out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I still think he's a more approachable character than the others. Which yeah. is interesting because people are all ooh, change and grow and evolve and age the characters. Yeah. Yet the most popular is the one that hasn't changed or grown or aged. Yeah. He's I'd still Batman. I'd say Superman's the most approachable. Even now? Yeah. Do you not think he's changed a, a great deal? I think he's more approachable now. Right. Why do you think that? Because um, he's younger. And I know I've complained a lot about people... The de-aging uh, of things. Uh, well, about the new fan bases, but I think he's a lot more suitable to the current fan bases now. Alright, fair enough. I don't, I've not really read enough of it, apart from Jeff Johns's. We may cover that, the yeah. Jeff Johns John Romita Jr. one. That may be interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's all done and dusted. How many yeah. issues is that? No idea. Alright. Jeff Johns, it may be 20. To cover that. Okay. You know, back to this detective comic. Yes! I could be wrong. Yes. And I probably am wrong. Probably. But I'm pretty sure... In most cultures, a tulpa is a shapeshifter who kills its victims and then takes the place. And you can always tell if it's a tulpa because it tries really, really hard to be normal and so has really big, fake smiles. Right. Maybe different cultures have different tulpa legends. Yeah. And this is the Tibetan tulpa legend. That's my no-prize explanation. Yeah, for and I'm, and I'm going for it. Is there any interesting advertisements in this issue of tech? A Super Nintendo. Yeah, Super Nintendo. Yeah. Operation Wolf. Uh, oh, Flash Annual 3, Batman Annual 13, and Doc Savage Annual 1. DC must have had the rights to Doc Savage at this point. Marvel had that in the 70s, didn't they? Did they? Yeah, because he met Spider-Man. Oh, there's a New England comics ad. You know, there are no hot comics yet. Atlantis Attacks is apparently going to be popular, but it's not hot. Hot hasn't happened yet, has it? No. That's a pretty cool Batman t-shirt, though. yeah. It is Batman diving underneath the bat signal. Yeah. That is quite cool, that, isn't it? 
Batman move. Guns and Roses, the comic book. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, there's one hot. It's red. Wolverine is in Punisher War Journal 6 and 7. That's hot. Is Wolverine a Punisher? Yo, do you get any more hot than that? <laughs> Drawn by Jim Lee and all. Yeah. Three for three, dude. <laughs> Big movie poster for Batman the movie. Hot. Lex Luthor bio is hot. Batman Joker and a Punisher skull t-shirts are hot. Uh, but uh, oddly enough, the Guns N' Roses, you're, you're limited to 150 per copy. Oh no, you, you get ten. You can get ten copies of Guns N' Roses, the comic book. <laughs> can barely wait. I need to find that on eBay. Don't I? Yeah. Guns N' Roses, the comic For your mum. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a great Christmas present, wouldn't it? Deluxe books, Wolverine, Spider-Man. It all looks like pretty standard stuff at this point. Nothing's... Uh... Oh, there's George Perez's cover. Mm. For uh, his return to Action Comics, Action Comics 643, that's brilliant, that. Love that. I think in the, the Guns N' Roses comic, they had a fight with Terminator and won. <laughs> oh, totally, because Guns N' Roses would win versus the Terminator. Uh, yeah. I just wanted him to smash their faces in. Actually, if it was nowadays, Ax- Axel Rose would probably eat the <laughs> What are you trying to say? <laughs> Nothing about Axel Rose. Spider-Man had a pretty good 1989. His marriage to Mary Jane Watson was a defining moment for the character, even for those of us that felt it was a silly move. And despite it sometimes really featuring and feeling that the writers sometimes had to shoehorn it in, there were still a good number of stories in this year. Web of Spider-Man and the newly renamed Spectacular Spider-Man both benefited from having the same writer, a returning Jerry Conway, and he did a good job of navigating editorially mandated crossovers like Inferno while still telling his own stories. Web of, despite being relatively weak, actually felt a part of the Spider-Man universe, but Conway still seemed to prefer writing Spectacular, a title he had helped launch in 1976, and it had better stories like the Tombstone Robbie Robertson arc, even if his fascination with the 70s clone saga dragged a few issues down. Over in the main book, though, David McAleaney and Todd McFarlane took Spider-Man down a number of different paths as the series tried to reinvent itself after such a drastic change to the character while still attempting to retain what it was that made Spider-Man great. As a sign of the times, the year started with a company-wide crossover, Inferno, and ended with a company-wide crossover, Acts of Vengeance. But in between, McFarlane's fresh art and the constant introduction of threats old and new kept the readers off balance in a good way. One such tale was Amazing Spider-Man issue 318, cover dated August 1989. The non-mutant superhero was being plastered across the cover, as if even mentioning the word mutant would translate to increased sales. The Scorpion, deadlier than ever, is the only cover copy, and the green-clad adversary whips his deadly tail around, destroying a building that Spider-Man decides is no longer a safe place to be. It's really rather good. McFarlane's Spider-Man is a little beefier than normal, in a good way, and the anatomy is plausible and not terribly exaggerated. McFarlane signs it with the number three, which, according to J. David Wheater, means there are three hidden spiders on this page, but I could only find two. Did you have better success than me? I did not. Well, there's one underneath Spider-Man's heel. Right. And I spotted another one. There's two underneath his other foot. Yeah. Uh, but I can't. I couldn't spot the third one. Oh, I yeah. still it's can't not. spot... The, oh, yeah, there it is underneath Scorpion's hand. Under well done. Yeah. All three of them present, present Sorry, and accounted for. Did you like the cover? Yeah. Good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I kind of think the background may have been better if it was light blue, but do you think that would have been distracting rather than white? Yeah. 
yeah, it would have been distracting, or yeah, it would have been better if it was light blue. Oh, it would have been a bit distracting. Oh, right. I think it's all right, white. Okay, okay, fair enough. I like as well. All of these comics um, have covered up the UPC code with art. Uh, Batman had a 50th anniversary logo, and uh, Spider-Man's just got the Scorpion in it, and the Superman one rather lazily yeah. just has "Don't miss Adventures of Superman" in one week. <laughs> Whereas the others actually put some effort in. Advertising on the cover. Yeah. You can't keep it, can you? Sting your partner! Hey! See what they did, though. Was by Michelini and McFarlane. The Scorpion is back with an even more deadly arsenal of weapons at his disposal, such as acid and mace, all courtesy of Justin Hammer. No relation to MC. Hammer wants the Scorpion to kidnap a General Musgrave, who Hammer intends to give to various foreign parties, so they will all allow his trade to go through unmolested. Please, Hammer, don't hurt him. He's giving the Scorpion a trial period, as he's more unstable than most, and seemingly obsessed with J. Jonah Jameson. Peter and Murray Jane, meanwhile, are still looking for a new apartment following their eviction from their previous place. MJ has a modelling gig and Peter tries to scrounge up some news photos, but pickings are slim. Jonah is even actively avoiding giving Peter work, handing assignments out to Lance Bannon and Nick Katzenberg instead. MJ has no luck either, her gig being given to another model, and she and Peter get into a fight when she comes home late that night after an evening of partying. The next day, General Musgrave, remember him, is arriving at the National Guard Armory in Brooklyn, where he will be given a peace medal. ESU students are up in arms and are protesting this, so Peter pops along spying a news story. As Spider-Man, he sneaks in to get off a few cheeky snaps, but he sees Lance Bannon and Joy Mercado and realises that this is the assignment Bannon was assigned. Still, the Scorpion is also there, completing his mission for Hammer, so Spider-Man is forced into action to prevent the General's kidnapping. Spidey is caught a little off guard by the new gadgets in Scorpion's arsenal, but the old swinging round by the tail trick is an old standby. Scorpion retaliates by destroying a wall, and as Spider-Man tries to hold it up to prevent innocent people from being hurt, Scorpion grabs Musgrave and flees. However, as Lance Bannon snaps pictures, he remarks that Jameson will be ecstatic, and the Scorpion, enraged he's aiding his least favourite person, threatens to kill Musgrove if Jonah isn't handed over in his place. Every single issue we've picked this week is to be continued. Yep. Weird that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or off side of the times. Yeah. You know. Uh, nice note to Wolverine on page one. The gentleman's name is Scorpion. He's the best there is at what he does. Even without Admantium Claws. Hey. I like that. I thought that was that was, uh, that was funny. Adamantium. Yeah. I always say Admantium, Dan. Mm. It's Adamantium. There's not a U in it. No. There is. <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> like everything else. Um, the Scorpion's got one of those masks that, despite completely covering his face, seems to move with it, yeah. allowing for a full range of expressions. The kind of thing you can only pull off in a comic book. I, I kind of like how it completely covers it, but he's still like, got his mouth open. Yeah, it's like it's, like it's wrapped on the inside of his yeah, lips, yeah. isn't it? I love that. You could not, you can't do that in comic, in animation, really. And you certainly can't do it in a film. Yeah. You can just about get away with uh, Batman the Animated Series, his eyes move to give him expression, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I love that. It's, it's a quintessentially comic book. There are a number of pop culture references in this particular issue that either don't work for an international audience, i.e. us, or are horribly dated, Mm. depending on your point of view. Peter references Leonard Part 6, which was a Bill Cosby film flop, I believe. 
Okay. As far as I can ascertain. Um, Pee Wee Herman and Colonel Oliver North. None of these meant anything to me in the late 80s. They mean even less nowadays. Uh, I know Pee Wee Herman. Well, I'm vaguely aware of Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. Largely due to actor Paul Rubens getting caught rubbing one off in a cinema. Okay. That's more what I know Pee Wee Herman for. Because <laughs> my thinkers, that was the name Pee Wee came from. <laughs> Uh, Colonel Oliver North, I vaguely kind of remember him being something for a minute, but I yeah. don't remember what for. Mm. So it kind of dates the comic at that point. Well, Pee Wee Herman's still doing stuff now, so... Yeah, Paul Rubens is. Pee Wee Herman doesn't do anything, does he? Yeah. What even was Pee Wee Herman? He had a playhouse. I know he had a show, but what was he? What was the point of it? I, I don't know. Was it a kid's show? Was it... I've no idea. I don't. I don't know what Pee Wee Herman is. All I know Paul Rubens for, other than you know, tugging one off in a cinema, is uh, he's the Penguin's dad in Batman Returns. Okay, that's Pee Wee Herman. Right. Not about Paul Rubens anyway. Uh, whilst McFarlane's Spider-Man looks magnificent this issue, his depiction of Murray Jane's face is god awful. Apart from a really excellent close-up of her on page fifteen, panel three. Okay, that is really good despite the eyes which are far too long and narrow and completely different sizes yeah on either side of her face that could if you squint <laughs> and are stood on your head be the same woman John Romita Senior used to draw in the 60s just about I guess kind of ish and it's a good facial expression but in every other respect I never knew who was drawing here I always thought he was drawing Peggy Bundy yeah rather than Hal, rather than Murray Jane to be honest it's not as bad as he draws some other times. No, well, this is still early in his run. Yeah, yeah. And he's not—he's not really got to the point where he's just drawing blobby noses and stuff. Uh, but I think his uh, stereotypical Asian man is pretty, pretty, pretty hilarious. Where's his stereotypical Asian man? Earlier on, when they're looking through uh, apartments yeah. with Mister Watanabe. All right. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Clichés are us. <laughs> I love the amount of her that he gives them. Mary Jane and Peter have got so much her. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's a bouffant day out, isn't it? <laughs> they are worth it. Yeah. Well, Joy McCann as well has got a magnificent flick. Yeah. There must be an awful lot of her spray keeping that flick in place. Yeah. And even Jonah's got a quiff. If, if you know, Jonah could probably set himself on fire smoking that. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of product well, in his hair. Well, it's not Jonah, is it? So it could probably be fake. Yeah, it's, it's the chameleon, isn't it? Yeah. It's a subplot from uh, Spectacular Spider, and that's true. I did think it was telling that the most memorable panels of Murray Jane in this book are when she's topless and when she's popping out of a negligee because yeah. you're not actually paying attention to the fact that her face is awful because mm. you're looking at other things. Weapons of mass distraction. Yeah. I think is the term. I do also really like on the next page with Harry Osborn how he's all blue except for where the lens flows are from the torch. From the torch. See, I liked that. Yeah. I, there's a part that you can go that's a bit cheaty artistically. But I, I thought it was quite clever. Yeah. You can't really see the background because it's dark. Except from the except bottom. Except from the torch. Yeah. Where they still keep it but his face is fully coloured. Mm. And he's looking for the Green Goblin out because that's tied into Inferno, isn't it? Yeah. Because we get Green Goblin versus Hobgoblin, don't we? Yeah. In fact, I, full disclosure, I cheated for this issue of Spider-Man. Right. The random number generator originally came up with the Inferno tie-in. Right. But it also came up with an Inferno tie-in for X-Men. 
Right. So I went back and changed the Spider-Man issue. Fair enough. Because I didn't want to cover two Inferno issues. Why does the goblin mask have teeth and a tongue? Uh, I don't know. When you consider that as soon as they put the mask on, it is the teeth and the tongue of the person wearing the mask. It's yeah. weird, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite work, does it? Because why would a mask have a tongue? A ch- to slide your own one in and to <laughs> so basically the tongue is built into the mask and you slide your own tongue into the mask so that you can cheat in in chilli t- tasting contests oh so they can't do DNA ah. didn't think of that did we no. I don't think they did either I think no. it was just uh, dumb luck the last half of the issue is a fight scene you know it's a good fight scene Mm. Very entertaining, not quite as well choreographed as the vulture fight scene from a couple of weeks ago. But this has far more emphasis on looking cool than being realistic, doesn't it? But, for all that, it's well laid out and exciting. Mm. Which is sometimes all I want from my comic book fight scenes. Yeah. Uh, I liked it a great deal. thought it was very impressive. Um, The Bullpen Bulletins features a profile on Sura Tuchinsky who really hates somebody called Gregory Wright, okay. who was a colorist and editor. Uh, he also, Sarah Tuchinsky was in a couple of Peter David's um, Spider-Man stories. I don't know what she's doing now, whether she still works for Marvel or, or not. We should Google her, shall we? Yeah. See what she's up to. Probably should have put that research in. Yeah, we, we, yeah, if we got paid, we'd do more research. Yeah, yeah. But as it is, we don't. What did you think of that one? Uh, I thought it was all right. It, it was decent. It was okay, wasn't it? But, Didn't suck. Yeah, yeah, I thought the marriage was a bit... It started off well, I thought, with them looking at houses and such, but then when Mary Jane just went back to, to party and thought they were doing so well handling this marriage and it went downhill so fast. Uh, I thought this was fun, for the most part. Should a fun side of Spider-Man, still trying to demonstrate that just because he's married, his problems won't be going away. They try too hard yeah. with that, don't they? Just because he's married, he's still Peter Parker! <laughs> Uh, the poor are back living without May after losing their condo and both MJ and Peter are struggling to find work. I had a bit of a problem with this. Right. But this was more, not this story, this was more this general era. The McFarlane sexing up of MJ. And then Marvel decided that she was in the supermodel bracket. Right. Which she never was before this. When we'd seen her before, she was an actress slash dancer slash model. Wannabe. I mean, it yeah. was implied that she'd got enough gigs to make a name... To make a living, sorry. Yeah. But she wasn't famous. Yeah. Maybe she'd been in a couple of TV adverts for toothpaste or something. Yeah. But she wasn't Claudia Schiffer or anything like that. If she's a supermodel, then she's in the million plus bracket when she's earning money. Right? Yeah. If she's in the Claudia Schiffer bracket, yeah. she's on that level of salary. So where's all her money? She spent it out partying and doesn't tell Peter. That's right. So that just makes her look stupid yeah that she's had she's in that bracket of income yet now has no money yeah whereas if you'd left her as a, a struggling actress slash model mm. who paid the bills doing toothpaste commercials yeah it still worked because most models don't get to that pay bracket yeah and so I, I kind of had a problem with that my problem with it was the living with Aunt May and yet Mary Jane comes in at 3am and starts shouting at Peter yeah and Aunt May doesn't care yeah yeah Aunt May's not too bad well she's an actress isn't she yeah Maybe she was just rehearsing a part. Yeah. Um, 
No, I meant Aunt May was an actress. Oh, no, not at this point. Right, okay. No, she's still Aunt May. Well, we don't know when she would change her out, really. Oh, yeah. She could have been an actress. She could have been an actress start. all the way from Amazing Fantasy <laughs> 15. Now, that would have been a story <laughs> in the making. Yeah, a retcon of someone who finds out that he will become Spider-Man in the future. Yeah. Wow. Aunt should... May never existed. Wow. It was just Mind an blown. from the start. There was never an Aunt May. Whoever paid the actress to be Aunt May wanted to get inside knowledge on S.H.I.E.L.D. knowing that his parents were Were S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Oh, this writes itself. (laughs) Uh, Peter Parker as a character, he's not really moved on in the 80s, has he? No. It's pretty much exactly the same as he was with the Denny O'Neill issue we covered for 1981. Albeit he now has cooler her. Or he now has more her. Yeah. Anyway... This may have been a problem, as we would see in the 90s. Peter Parker was always the character who typified growth and change to the reading audience. But there's only so much of that one can do until he's not the character we fell in love with anymore. This issue, as good as it was, is starting to show the cracks in the armour of changing and ageing a character like Spider-Man. Because it does scream at you, doesn't it? Just because he's married to Mary Jane, things will stay the same! And you're like... That's kind of disingenuous, because things don't stay the same when you're married. That's mm. the whole point of it. But, you know, whatever. That's what they decided to do, and then they decided not to do it. So, what do I know? The X-Men went from strength to strength once again throughout 1989. Wolverine gained a solo series, initially by Clermont, but later seen the return of John Byrne. Even with the regular X-Factor, Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants alongside new title Excalibur, demand for mutant story was so voracious they practically took over the Marvel Comics Presents series and had additional mini-series X-Terminators and the Havoc and Wolverine Prestige series. There wasn't anything they couldn't put an X in front of, did Even Marvel Tales, a Spider-Man reprint title, started concentrating on X-Men stories. The Inferno X-Title crossover brought in the rest of the Marvel Universe to start the year off, and by the end of the year, the X-Men were poised on the edge of their biggest ever success with the arrival of new artist Jim Lee. Uncanny X-Men issue 242, cover dated March 1989, was another double-sized spectacular. We use the word spectacular very loosely. The cover by Mark Silvestri and Dan Green boasts that because you demanded it, the originals are back! And not because Jim Shooter thought it would be a good sales stunt. Below the logo, X-Factor. By originals, it means the original X-Men. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, the Beast and the Angel are not the sci-fi channel series, the originals. Albeit, all these characters have significantly changed since their heyday and they are all dramatically jumping out at Havoc, Wolverine and Madeline Pryor. It's a good cover, very Walt Simonson, which is apt given that Simonson was artist on X-Factor at this point. It is also the cover of Essential Volume 8. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? It's, it's good. Does the job, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. No more, no less. No. Just what it says. Inferno Part the Third was written by Chris Clermont without by Mark Silvestri and Dan Green. I had no idea what the hell was happening here, <laughs> but I think that Madeline Pryor, wife of Cyclops, has turned evil, perhaps due to Jean Grey being back from the dead as if she's just returned from Bermuda. Havoc, Cyclops' brother, now seems to have the hots for Madeline, a situation she is exploiting, which is a little odd, 
But Cyclops is too busy being all wrapped up in Jean, who's busy kissing Wolverine. The plot seemed to centre around the demon, Nasturith or something, Nasty, as the characters would nickname him, who's managed to pollute New York with his essence. I don't know whether he can bottle that and sell it in Sears. Maybe he could, I don't know. And thus cause demons to run free over the earth. The X-Men seem possessed by these demons. X-Factor do not. The two teams pretty much fight for the entire issue. As you may have guessed from the synopsis, lovely listener, I was not a fan of this. No, no. I felt this was a confused mess. Not helped by Silvestri's art, which is not floating my boat at all. Claremont still manages to get some decent character moments out of the script, and it's not without its little flashes of likability, but I do think at this point the X-Men has started to become the convoluted narrative that would typify the series. This made long-time fans really happy, but alienated people like me. Just jumping into Inferno here, I was completely lost as to what was happening. Now, I grant you, it was part three of a multi-title crossover, but I'm not a reader who will buy more stuff if I don't understand stuff. I'm a reader who will go, I'm not buying that again, and put it to one side. What did you think of it? I thought it was crap. Excellent! Good. Something we are in full agreement with. Honestly, um, the one thing that redeems this issue is there's a great panel of the Beast holding, like, with his arms around the the female characters and he's got the biggest (laughs) turd-eating grin you've ever seen. So basically what you're saying is the Beast looks like he's going to get it all. Yeah, yeah. And that's good. It was a convoluted mess of fighting, of characters. I didn't even know who they were. Yeah. And everyone's kissing everyone for the first half. It felt like overdressed porn. (laughs) And we don't want overdressed porn. No. Yeah, it's 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 um, it's not good, is it? No, no, not in not in the slightest bit. And thankfully, we don't have to do a page by page analysis of stuff we don't like. Hey, hey! Apparently, <laughs> Inferno is well liked by X fans. Fair play to them. But uh, this didn't make me want to check out further instalments. More damning than that. Clermont's other 80s X issues have made me want to read more. Yeah. Go back and read the Paul Smith stuff and get to grips with the whole X-Men phenomenon. This issue, undone, undid yeah. all of that hard work. To be fair on it, though, like you said, we were reading part three of a story, but also it seems like it was a big convoluted story with the other X titles. Yeah, well, they're all in this essential. That's what I'm saying, if we'd read them all. Yeah. Well, Uncanny X-Men 200 was part of a sprawling story. We thought that was brilliant. Yeah. This doesn't tell a story in and of itself. I wonder, do you think Chris Clermont was even interested in doing Inferno? It's an X-Men-led crossover, but two of the X-Men titles at this point weren't being written by Clermont. He was only writing Uncanny X-Men. Was he not overseeing them? I don't know, that's what I'm wondering. Maybe he, he had the distinct lack of interest in even being involved in Inferno. Could be. Could, because it certainly read like he couldn't be bothered. It does reek of an X-Factor title rather than an X-Men title. Yeah, it wasn't good at all. No. It was it was very bad. Uh, finally, before we sign off, J. David Wheater was kind enough to send us a copy of The Adventures of Super Issue 38, which, as you may recall, was the second part of the Superman Superboy mind swap story. 
I postulated that the issue by Paul Cooperberg and Kurt Schaffenberger may have been more of an emotional ride for Superman, giving him an encounter with his parents who would have been dead for over a decade. Sadly, it doesn't. It's set at Thanksgiving, which we would have thought would have been a perfect setting for the story I described. Emotional and tugging on the heartstrings <laughs> and all of that stuff that you do in Thanksgiving stories. But instead, it basically does Groundhog Day right. with Superboy reliving the day's events thanks to a Lex Luthor plot. There's a nice use of time travel in the story. It does sound kind of cool, to be honest. It's, it's not... That's what I'm saying. It's not awful, but it's not what I expected it to be. Yeah. Um, there's a good scene at the end where Superboy Man thinks that, you know, the world would be a much better place in 1981, Lex, if I just kill you now. Yeah. Which is a great bit, and he pounds the crap out of it. <laughs> Kicks the snot out of Lex Luthor, which was quite amusing in a, in a weird way. But on the whole, it was a wasted opportunity. Right. I wanted more Superboy Man Thanksgiving. I wanted more <laughs> Mum and Dad. Oh! Yeah. I wanted that episode of Quantum Leap where he goes home. Right in the in the seventies, all episode of the Hulk where he goes on for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I wanted that, and I didn't get it. So I mean, many thanks to David for sending us a copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. much appreciated. But sadly, not what I wanted it to be. Maybe. But you know, it was a different time, wasn't it? Maybe in your head, that is actually what happened in your in your own head canon. Head canon, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a thing, isn't it? Yeah, head canon. I didn't know that till Emily it's, Middleton mentioned it's it. It's for fans who are in denial and so want to make themselves happy. <laughs> fans who pick their own continuity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. So there are fans out there who can be like, one more day, never happened. <laughs> well, it didn't. No, okay, fair enough. And that was the 1980s. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Looking back, whilst many of the popular gimmicks of the 90s are still with us today, you can trace the evolution of comics from the 80s to now. The idea of saturating the market with a popular character may not have started here, step forward, Mott Weisinger, but it did become more prevalent. The cross-title and subsequent cross-company crossover started in the 80s, as did spinning popular concepts off into numerous families of books that were interconnected, whereas before the stories were normally confined to one comic series. At the beginning of the decade, comics still had a whiff of the Silver Age about them, even the edgier Marvel ones. They still told stories that were mostly done in one and sold as monthly periodicals aimed at a wide audience. By the end of the decade, stories danced from title to title. They were starting to become bigger and more important. They had to matter, and issues devoted to smaller moments were starting to disappear. It's a fascinating decade for comics readers, one well worth exploring, as it is regarded as the era comics grew up. It's arguable that, as DC strove for mainstream acceptance of comics as an art form, they may have gone too far in that direction, but no one can deny that they created some classic comics and comic stories, many of which are still in print and referenced today. Crisis on Infinite Earths was undoubtedly the turning point for good or ill. Marvel seemingly became more interested in being commercially successful, presumably due to the constantly changing ownership, and they just kept chucking stuff at the wall to see what would stick. Secret Wars was a turnabout for them. Whether Jim Shooter really did believe it was a magnificently brilliant series, how comics should be done, someone has stated that Shooter has said, is moot. After Secret Wars, Shooter seemed to equate bigger with better and set Marvel upon that path, a path they still tread today. When the 80s were good, they were very, very good, publishing some of the best comics ever to see print in the medium. But an awful lot of what we complain about nowadays as comics readers started in the 1980s.
And that's it. I should ask you what you thought of it. Of the 80s? What did you think of the 80s? Overall? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was good and bad. So, some was good. And some was bad. <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say... Is, some was good <laughs> and some were bad. It, it was the start of something which we can still see today, but yet was so different. Like, DC was starting to be serious by being darker, whereas now they're darker, but very childish. It's not a, a, an adult maturity. No. Yeah. But with Marvel, they seem to have matured by being family-friendly. Oh, I don't know how much... Some of it's family-friendly. I don't think all of it. A lot of it. In the same way The Incredibles is. And a lot of that started here. So it was kind of good in what's happened, but kind of bad in what stayed. So now that we've covered the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s... Right. Which do you think was the defining decade? I don't know, because I can only remember the 80s and the 90s. (laughs) I I think the 70s. Yeah. I mean, the 60s, you know, had the Marvel age of comics and Marvel forced DC to adapt. Hmm. But the 70s was where comics started to really explore what they could be. Neil Adams came in and just blew the bloody doors off. Yeah. And then Denny O'Neill came in and started telling different types of stories. And even with Superman, they tried experimenting with different things to do with him. Yeah. And I think the 70s is where comics... I don't want to say started maturing, but I think comics in the 70s was where they started to learn to experiment with the medium. Yeah. Stuff like Warlock and Captain Marvel. The 70s were the most experimental. Yeah, and New Gods and all of that stuff. See, by the time you get to the 80s... The DC particularly are leaning too far in the the region of not just for kids. Yeah. And they actually get to the point where the comics aren't for kids at all. Mm. And then they kind of pull it back a bit. It kind of seems a bit like in the 80s, the changes they were making were definite permanent changes that they regretted later on. Whereas in the 70s, they experimented and knew what mm, But they still put all the toys back in the box at the end of it, Yeah, for the most part. So they, they, they didn't make permanent changes that they regretted. They experimented to see if it worked or not, and then changed. So do you think Crisis on Infinite Earth was ultimately a failure? Or no. do you think it wasn't necessary? Or do you think it was necessary at the time that they did it, it, but now it's led them on a path that maybe they shouldn't be going on? No, I think Crisis was necessary. Really, really necessary in some cases. Superman. Yes, definitely Superman. Yeah. But like the new 52 was now, whether it was success or a failure, it was a chance DC needed to take. Right. Okay. See, because Marvel haven't really had that. Marvel's no. continuity is still pretty. There's a couple of hiccups along the way, but the Fantastic Four that debuted in Fantastic Four number one yeah. are still the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And that body of work behind them still exists as a history of the character. Yeah. Marvel have never gone down the reboot method. Or oh, they have, just not. Yeah, well, they've always kind of stealth rebooted, haven't they? Well, Marvel now. We're, yeah. we'll, we'll do a DC but we but won't we kind of won't yeah the Fantastic Four Marvel now is still the Fantastic Four yeah. Captain America is still Captain America maybe a different guy under the mask but the story yeah. still has that storied history it's titles like that the long running ones where it's best to experiment yeah 
in a long-running title, I think. See, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a long history behind you. You just ignore what you want to ignore and keep what you want to keep. Yeah. Like Denny O'Neill did with Batman in the 70s. Yeah. He didn't specifically say, you know, all that stuff in the 50s, that didn't happen. Yeah. He just didn't refer to it anymore. Mm. And he drew Batman as being more le- live and athletic and they drew him as being more realistic in his portrayal because yeah. of Neil Adams. I mean, I've said to you before, I can skip to entire decades of Batman yeah. and just start, go from 1939 to 1969 and I'm happy. Yeah. But I'm not discounting all the people that do like that stuff. If you want to read the Joker's five-way revenge yeah. and think that the Joker's utility belt or the Joker saying, Ah, new boner! Look at my boner, Batman! If you want to think that all that still happens, yeah. you can because they've never wiped it out. That's Whereas if you're like me and you go, I'm not interested in any of that, you can ignore it. A lot of it's your preference. Who's your Batman? Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Yeah, well, um, it was rhetorical, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's who is your Batman? What's Batman to you? What are your Batman adventures mm. that you enjoyed the most? But all the other Batmans are still there and all the yeah. other histories to learn. That kind of makes the characters much more richer. Yeah. I've said to you before what bugged me about the new 52 wasn't the reboot over at number one Yeah, it wasn't the loss of continuity I don't really give a toss about continuity you can rewrite continuity all the time Yeah, it was the loss of the history well Scott Snyder's spoken about it because in an interview he was talking about taking over from Grant Morrison Hmm. and he said one of the best pieces of advice Morrison gave to him was that you're not writing a continuation of the previous writer's stories, what you're doing is you're building up on the history of a character. It's yours for the amount of time you're custodian of it. Yeah. And you can do what you want with it within that time frame. But at the end of it, you've got to put Bruce Wayne back in the Batcave for the next person to come along and tell his story. Yeah. See, that's what I was saying to you about that Batman story. Yeah. Every writer that's come along and done something with Batman, they've always put him back at the end where he was. Mm. And then the next writer comes along. Yeah, and you can't say that with Superman and Spider-Man they're different for being married they're different for having been rebooted yeah. whereas Batman a, new, a writer comes along he tells his Batman stories he goes away the next writer comes along and he's still Batman yeah you know what I mean yeah that's what I meant by the episodic nature of Batman ultimately benefiting the character over 75 years the yeah. Joker's the same you can read any Joker story from any era and it's recognisably a Joker story, even the Batman's boner one, yeah. which we take the back out of quite a lot. <laughs> but the Joker himself has not specifically changed until we get to the New 52 where they've tore his face off. I don't think it's... But I'm kind of, So how do they get back from that, though? Can they? Uh... They've tore his skin off. How do they get back from that? Oh, do you know something I don't? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> And I can't help but think that's why Batman has remained successful. At his core, he's never changed. I mean, yes, there's been eras of campy Batman. Yeah. There's been eras where he's primarily more of a detective than a vigilante. And there's been eras, eras, there's been eras where he's more grittier yeah. and humorless than others. But he's still Batman. Yeah. Next time on an all-new episode Speaking of, Batman. of Hey Kids Comics. Speaking of Batman, yeah. we're going to be a Batman <laughs> podcast again. Hey. Yay. Michael wants to cover Zero Year. Yeah. So we're going to do that. Greg yeah. Capullo, Scott Snyder, the new Batman Year One. Yeah. 
It's good, isn't it? Alright, we don't have to listen for three episodes. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye bye. is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.